Coffee Dead Source, your home for just feeling real bad. I'm Nathan, your most open wounded host. Mm. I'm Andy, your most anarchic host. And I'm Pat, your NWA host. NWA. The band. The rap group. Yeah, the rap group. Or like the world whatever organization. What I don't know what that is. NWA. Or Nationwide Asshole. That's what it is. That's what I was thinking of. Anyway. Yeah, you know what? That's it. That w- That's correct. <laughs> because of the way I've been feeling, I did not edit uh, out swears from last week's episode, but I will be editing out swears from this week's episode. Uh, yeah, I did listen to F*** the Police earlier today, and I have been listening to that song quite a bit recently. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, how was your guys' week and stuff? <laughs> I... I have been trying really hard not to ask people recently, how are you doing? I think, and like, maybe it's just me, but I talked about it a little bit on last week's episode, which was phenomenal. Like, I I was so pleased that Lolita, Angela, and Michael decided to spend that time with us and tell us how they were feeling. I felt really good about it. But I talked about it a little bit last week, and what I've been doing in my spare time is watching videos of police assault peaceful protesters. Well, that's fun. And I've seen I've seen about 200 of them now. There's apparently about 600 floating out there, and I've just been collecting them. There're better collections out there than the ones I have. I've also spent time defriending people on Facebook. I've spent time this is my norm arguing with the conservatives on Facebook trying to explain that hey Systemic racism is a thing. White privilege is a thing. And here's here's two dozen fact checks that will show you that it is a thing. Oh, you still don't you still don't think so. Okay. And what's your proof? Oh, nothing. Okay, great. So that's been my week. It's sucked pretty bad. That's fun. You sound really charged up over everything. I feel like yeah, I was I was joking when we started the episode but yeah, I feel awful. Like I was telling Andy before we started recording, I feel raw right now. And like normally my my thing is like I'm the funny guy, right? Like that's how I deal with pain. Well, it, like that's how I so, so Wait, you're the funny guy? Wait, 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 wait. I I am definitely I mean, at least out of the three of us for sure. But Sure, 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 right. Right. But that's totally. like like I've dealt with pain through humor. Since I got bullied in junior high until now, 25, 26 years later, and I've been in a position where my humor has gotten real fucking dark <laughs> and uh, it's it's still in there, but I'm just it's this whole thing has been rough and I'm, I've been dealing with it in an unhealthy way, which is just to dive into it as deep as I can without leaving my house because... I would love to go to these protests. And Andy, I salute you. We're going to have some audio that you recorded later on that is fantastic. But every time I think about going out, we are still living through a pandemic. And I have to think about, am I willing to get my stepson sick to do this? Like, there's, it's a different question than, am I willing to get myself sick? Because I live with other people. Am I willing to get my wife sick? Am I willing to get all the people that she interacts and all all the people that my stepson interacts with sick? And I can't do it. So 
I've been doing what I can from like virtual land. So anyway, I suck. I'm yeah. not not doing great. Well, actually, one of I mean one of my favorite uh, memes going around was the um, "Welcome to protesting. Choose your class." You know, and as a nerd, first of all, I just really appreciate the D and D breakdown of how to protest, but also from another angle, from more of a sociological angle, you don't have to be out there on the front line holding a picket sign, absolutely, or holding a picket sign, I holding totally a sign agree with that. Um, to 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 be to be active and supportive to the cause. So there's a lot of va- perfectly equally valid ways. To contribute. And I think when I'm talking about other people, I 100% agree with you. But for me, it sucks. Like, I I personally want to be out there. I would never judge anybody else for not being out there. But for me, it feels like, ugh, well, I mean, it sucks. Listen, for this protest, you're going to have to not be squid. That <laughs> That is an excellent reference that exactly five people in the world will get. <laughs> To give the audience the most basic idea of what he just said, Squid is my favorite character that I play with in our D&D campaign. And that's all you get. Who is a tank. And yes. That's the reference. So, anyway. She's a very good tank. If I were to talk about my week, it would just be echoing the same basic sentiments there, for the most part, um, with pretty little variance. And really, the only variance is going to come out during the rest of the episode. So, I'm just going to kind of say ditto. And pass it along to Pat. Well, so um, this week is the delayed tax week. Normally it's in April. And, you know, they delayed it because of all the stuff going on with coronavirus. I usually send my stuff in to a tax attorney, a CPA, and have them do it for me. But what I've heard is that it's really easy to do with online software with, like, TurboTax and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, if it's easy, then, you know, how hard could it be? Try it out. So I actually did my own taxes this year and saved money by not paying an attorney to do it. We'll see if I get also, audited or anything. Can I give you one little piece of information, though? Yeah. Uh, taxes are due on July 15th. Yeah. Oh, really? So you, you just... Did it a month early by accident. Oh, well. Congratulations. I mean, that's better than having waited an extra month anyway. Absolutely. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but... No, I'm trying to get mine all together, too. Caitlin got hers, and I thought I had all my stuff, but apparently I was missing a form or two, so I'm I'm just gathering those and then sending those in, trying to get it done before the deadline. Last year, I didn't do my taxes until, like, November. Did you get a uh, deferment? Extension? Yeah, I just got an extension, and then I just didn't ever have to, like, just let it continue to go. I have a good thing that happened to me this week that is directly related to what we're talking about. Sarah and I had had some back taxes that we owed, and I've been paying them off for about three years, and this month was my last extra payment on those. So that's that's a few hundred dollars more a month that we get to throw at the other people that we owe money to. So, hooray! Right. Yeah, yeah, nice. Well, that's the other thing is that our regional income tax, are you guys in Cleveland Heights? 
Yeah, I'm University Heights. Um, I hate Rita. So I have to go into the Rita. Usually, I I wind up going into the office to do it, but this year I did it online. But they always need their money up front, so I wind up paying like a whole year up front. But that's the other thing is like just because you know the the taxes got extended to July, it doesn't mean that Rita doesn't want their money. Right. So. Yeah. And they're really aggressive about making sure that they get their money. I I hate our regional income tax. And the worst part about it is that um you know, you're paying your local taxes twice essentially. You're paying it in the place where you work and then also the place that you live. Some places that you live don't collect that at all. Yeah. And it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it's awful. I <laughs> <laughs> I hate their guts. I hate Rita so much. Did fun fact? We're gonna have like I, one fan named Rita out there, and you just made her cry. And we're, I'm sorry, Rita. You know, like we fine. we love Rita. You, but... I'm not sorry. You should change your name. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, um, the tax so, tax agency is the worst. You know that the the income tax, or at least the federal income tax, was actually unconstitutional up until, like, 1913. Yeah, we can... <laughs> we can talk about taxes another time, but... You still um, you still think it's illegal, right? No. It's not illegal. We'll talk about taxes another time. <laughs> uh, listen, what I have I have one of... One whole um, episode of my, my economics course is going to be on taxes, and that's only going to scratch the surface. I would love to do a full two-hour episode <laughs> Yeah, we figured, because nobody it, are listening to our episodes right now, that we release a whole other type of episode so that people could also not listen to that in addition. And I'm pretty <laughs> excited about it. Yeah, it's going to be great. We've got a few other types of episodes for no one to listen to well, coming out. Um, it'll be in the backlog if, if anyone ever right. decides to go back. There's going to be a point where we'll Wildly yeah. successful, and people are on episode four hundred and fifty or whatever, and they want to come back and hear our humble beginnings. Sure, you know how you know you make it in the podcast industry is to get invited to do a live show in Tokyo. Who says that? I just said it. Okay. Well, cool. So Tokyo, we have a really gross party game that we should play sometime that is loosely linked to Tokyo. Boy, you really. Really lead with the strong card. Yeah, there. it's gross, and I love it. <laughs> but we could totally play. I don't know what we could play it about. on the. We could play it, uh, on the podcast. You know what else is gross? Excessive use of force by police. BBBU. Yeah, that's where we're at this week. So, so uh, to give people an idea of where we are in the world right now, George Floyd. If you don't know where we are in the world right now, today I, is whatever the hell date is. June tenth. 2020, just look up some headlines. This is, you have to know what's right. going on. The entire world I was gonna, is consumed I was gonna by make it. Some joke. people don't live in the United States, though. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about how, uh, it's too bad there wasn't more to talk about that happened this week. <laughs> it's a slow news week. The nation is currently uh, imploding with just rage over the killing of George Floyd a couple of weeks ago, and I can't stress this enough. I would say white hot rage, but I don't want to. That's a rough joke. Yeah, nailed it. 
That is a rough joke. Yeah, that's a rough joke. But that's where the, my humor is um, right now. But the thing is, and again, like I said, I've been talking to a lot of uh, conservatives on Facebook. I think there's a confusion among people, this bullshit argument of, well, they arrested the guys. What more do you want? And it's not just about George Floyd. It's about Breonna Taylor. It's about all the people that have come before. It's about the systemic past of our country and how police regularly murder black people. And it is heartening, at least for me, to see a ton of white people out there during these uh, protests. Allies trying to be good allies. And failing a lot of the time. Like, super failing Super hard, but that's a good. But that's a good thing that they're arrested and that they arrested the three cops that were stood by and watched it happen, as well. And they're being charged with crimes. I mean, isn't that pretty yeah. good? How long did it take? And the, like, is this what happens every time a police officer murders a black person? Do hundreds of thousands of people need to go protest outside before arrests are made? So it's good, but it's a result of public pressure and not because it's the same thing that we saw with Ahmaud Arbery that we were talking about. It took two months for that to happen, and it would not have happened unless... And it took not just two months, but it took the release of the video of it happening. Right. It needed the entire world to look at it and go, "Uh uh-uh, no, that was not okay, for them to say... All right, no, I guess we should do something And now we have 600-plus videos of... the. It's fun to me that the police reaction to the country... Every single state has now had a sizable protest. Every state in the country and multiple countries outside of the U.S. have also had protests against police brutality. And the police's thought about how to respond to that is to commit more police brutality in 10 days than we've seen in years before this. And it's all on video. So I've been keeping my eye on the last few days with all of George Floyd's memorial services going on. I've been trying to pay close attention to to what's being said there because I think it's really important that this is bigger than George Floyd and what happened to George Floyd. This is not just about George Floyd and what happened to George Floyd. This is about what has been going on for decades and decades, uh, and centuries and centuries in in greater degree. Um, And when we say today that it's the best it's ever been, that's a very depressing thought, because it is absolute shit now. And this is probably close to reasonably the best it's ever been for black people in America. And that is a very heavy statement. That is not me sugarcoating things and saying, it's the best it's ever been. We should be happy about that. That's me saying, that's fucked up really bad. And so what I'm hoping is we're starting to see little bits of change. Like Minnesota, the city council voted to disband the police. Now, the mayor has said they have a veto-proof uh, majority, but the mayor has said that's not going to happen. So who knows what's going to happen in the courts about that. They've also said, at least temporarily, they're going to ban being able to put your knee on someone's neck. But it's temporary. And I can't keep track, because we've been seeing, like, police chiefs have been fired here and there. There there have been, like, 
things that have been happening, but it's all like trickling down. And who knows with how fucked police unions are in this country if any of this stuff is going to stick. Or if these, they call them gypsy cops, which is a racist term as well. But yeah. they that's what they call them. They call them gypsy cops because they get fired for abuse or they quit just before they're going to have consequences and they just move to a different precinct. I was watching, I forget what the show was, but they were talking about one officer that over the course of a nine-year career had nine different precincts that he worked with, three of which were in one year, you know? And we'll, what I'm hoping happens is we're starting to see tiny changes. And what I'm hoping is people don't accept that. Because what we need is we need big instrumental change in this country. We need big changes. And people need to stay out and they need to keep protesting because this is what we get in two weeks. What are we going to get in two months? So if we're going to kind of dissect this problem, let's start by establishing whether that there is a problem and, and what, what that problem is. So what I mean by that is there's one of the very first and, and most effective, I'm going to say, because it's not actually valid, but one of the first deflections that right-wingers make in defense of police in situations like this is that, oh, it, they say, oh, it's a, just a, a few bad apples. It's, it's just a couple racist cops who are doing things because they have a badge, but they don't represent police departments. And this is, first of all, wrong, and we can parse through the argument. Well, I know, what I like about also, that analogy... I think it's a very dangerous yeah, argu- argument. we hear that all the time. Um, and I posted something about this. Are you about to make about what the actual Right, exactly. Is? You you posted about this on yeah. Facebook earlier. Sure. So, it, this is something that always bugs me about people who... When, when people make this argument, they say, oh, well, it's just a few bad apples. It's like, I... I they clearly don't remember what the idiom they are referencing right. was, because that is that a f- just a few bad apples spoils the whole bunch. Right, and that's and which that's means the analogy that they're if using. you have one fucking racist in your cop department, everybody else is right. liable. Everybody who covers for him is also liable. Well, this is the frustrating thing for me about there being six hundred plus videos out there, because first of all, that's the stuff. That was lucky enough to be captured on video. You know, like, there's a bunch of stuff out there that's happening that's not on video. But we have proof that at least 600 cops out there across the country have committed these atrocious crimes. And, like, for me, what I can't get across is your f***ing job. You've taken an oath to protect these people that you're attacking. I can't get over that. But the thing is that... There are these 600 acts of violence that we have on video now, plus images, plus eyewitness testimony over and over and over and over again. But the problem is, it's not the 600 cops that I'm worried about. It's all the police that saw those 600 incidents happen. Because it's not 600 cops, it's the 100 plus in each little precinct where one of these things happened because... You're a bad cop if you do one of these things. Or, like, the phrase that I've been using is thug with a badge. You're a thug with a badge 
if you've been doing this stuff, and you're a thug with a badge if you remain silent after you've seen it. That's an interestingly racially charged power. Yeah, the reason why I'm using it is because it is the exact thing that the president called the protesters. Mm-hmm. I have very specifically chosen that. How very calculated of you. Isn't language great? I just, ugh. But yeah, you're a bad cop if you do it, and you're a bad cop if you see it and you say nothing about it. And that, like, I don't have a lot of wiggle room on that. Now, I, there's, I think what, what the reason why people cling to that argument is because a lot of these people are in areas like, say, Cleveland Heights or University Heights, sort of smaller, tight-knit communities where they probably know a number of the police officers in the community, and they there's never any stories about any racism, going, you know, racist cops in Cleveland Heights that I know of anyway. I've lived here most of my life. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem to be, right? It doesn't seem to make sense, and so it, you think, okay, well, it's probably just those big inner city departments where they don't really know people, and so there's just a few people who kind of, like, sneak in. I think that that's really problematic um, because also that sort of mentality, essentially denying that there's a problem, prevents progress from being made. It's sort of the, the you know, they say the first step uh, to recovery in alcoholism is acknowledging that you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think just take out alcoholism and substitute police brutality, I guess. Well, so so let me ask this. So if, probably go hand in hand. If we think that we're going to start disbanding police departments and defunding police departments, what do you think the result of that is going to be? What, what do you expect well, will before happen? Before we answer that question, I think it's really important to define what that means. Because, first of all, I think defund okay. police get your attention, right? Like, it's it's a bold thing, and it jumps out at you. But it's not accurate, because the people who are saying, at least the majority, because there's not really a not really an organized thing, I, I started talking about this, like, a week ago, when I started hearing about it, and there was nothing you could find. Like, there was almost nothing, and now everybody's talking about it. It's sort of like the buzzword of the day. But what it's talking about is rethinking safety in cities. And what that looks like, because probably most calls the cops are brought out. And in their defense, police are given too much to do. They're used as a Swiss army knives. Uh, if you have, like, a stray animal problem, you send police out to deal with it. If you have mental health issues with people or uh, issues with homeless people, you have them deal with it. There are all these things that cops aren't built to deal with that they're sent out for before. And so what the defund police movement, which I'm pretty much all on board for now is talking about is a reallocation of funds. The idea being that there are absolutely things that you need police for. And it's basically one thing, which is overwhelming violence. You know, sometimes you need somebody with a gun to show up and maybe you keep, cops on for that, but you don't need as many police as you have right now because they're ineffective at doing what they're supposed to do. And what I mean by that is, if their job is to close, or not close cases, but uh, make arrests. You know, like, sort of like close their case on their end in, uh, (laughs) you have the law and order 
So they're the order part of it, right? And for their cases, about... Dumb, dumb. Right. The thing is, about 50% of homicides are closed. About 13% of rapes are closed. About 8% of property damage is closed. They're not good at doing the thing they're supposed to do, that they were designed for. And that's not all their fault, or what it's worth. They're really bad because they show up to situations where there being a gun causes violence to happen that would not have happened otherwise. And so the idea is instead of there being a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all model, the idea is you go ahead and take some of the funding. So I think instead of defund police, it's more like reallocate police funds and figure out what is needed in your specific community with those funds. There will still be some cops, and hopefully they're the good ones. You come up with a way to make sure that the good cops are the one that stay. But maybe you need more social workers. Maybe you need uh, like people who deal with mental health situations. Maybe you need a fucking dog catcher. Like Whatever it is you need that the cops are dealing with, you figure that out and you reallocate those funds to rethink the way safety is done in your community. Yeah, I think, well, can, can you imagine someone who is very cynical and might say like, oh, there's going to be fewer police patrolling the streets. There's going to be fewer police to respond to calls. This yeah. is a good opportunity for me to rob a bank. This is a good opportunity to uh, commit a crime that I think I can get away with. Yeah, the numbers, though, don't bear that out. In the Both in, in places in America where police departments have been have had their budgets significantly cut and in other countries where their police are, the scope of what their police are responsible for is significantly less than ours. They're, the crime is not, is actually less. There's another fun thing. So, John Oliver had a good piece this week. A lot of people did. I'm going to include a bunch of doobly-doo this week. But one of the things one of the things he pointed out was, uh, first of all, I'm a big union guy. I love unions. Police unions. They are awful. They are terrible. And there was one particular terrible thing that happened in New York where the uh, police union didn't like the way something had gone down and told police to slow down. They, they didn't call for a work stoppage. They called for a slowdown of police. And so that means they went out to fewer, fewer homicides. They, they didn't write as many tickets. They weren't present as much in the neighborhoods. And you know what happened to you, New York? You know what kind of chaos that happened when the police slowed down? Nothing. It didn't affect the safety of the citizens at all. So... Good. Let's have less police. I think that's good. There will still be there will still be SWAT teams. If you want to go rob a bank, there's still going to be people who are meant to address that situation. There are going to be guys with guns who just sit around reading like fucking field and stream in their squad cars or whatever they're going to do when they're not doing anything else. I love hearing you recycle comments that you you used oh, on man. Facebook throughout the week. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it so much. So. Um, no, I think, yeah, I mean, the, the concept really here is not, when they say defund the police, they don't mean defund entirely. They mean significantly defund the police, and more importantly, significantly reduce the scope of responsibilities of the police. 
let them focus on what they do and let other people do those things like, say, uh, settling domestic violence complaint. Right, that should not be handled by a cop. That should be handled by a. So that's board. that's fine, and I I think that that might be you know finding a creative solution to to making that work. I think could be a great idea. I think it's also possible that like even if it's one in a hundred, even if it's one in a thousand, some of those domestic violence calls are going to turn into a much more dangerous, much more escalated situation than was originally anticipated. I think that's a totally reasonable point, too. And I think the trick will be figuring that out. Like, what is what does that look like? You know, because the that social worker who goes to goes to deal with that domestic situation, that domestic violence situation, they're still going to have their little walkie on their shoulder and they're still going to be able to call in police with guns. So... Maybe, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the, that necessarily look like, looks like. There have been a few examples, um, even here in the States, and one of the first ones is Camden, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys read anything much about Camden. They did this back in, I think, 2012. 2012. 2012. And um, I, you know what? I'm going to, I feel like, Nathan, you probably know a little bit better detail about what, what happened there. Well, I can fact check this, uh, this stuff too. True. But, yeah, oh, I was going to say before we started the recording, but here we are. Uh, I'm going to definitely, like, I'm making, I, I'm relying a lot on fact-checking. Absolutely. This episode. Um, so Camden, I'll Camden help with from the what I understand, and I will do a fact-check at the end of this, so if I'm wrong on some of this, future Nathan, go ahead and fix that for me. Camden had the single most police shootings of anywhere in the country. They had more they had more officer-involved shootings than anywhere else in the country. And so what they decided to do was defund police. They decided to go ahead and find different ways of interacting with the community, finding different ways to do safety. And I don't fully understand exactly what it was they did. But what I can tell you is in 2012, they had 75 officer-related shootings in a year. And in 2018, I believe, was the last year I was able to find data on, they had 25. 25 isn't great, but it's a third. I mean, they dropped it down by 66%, and instead of being the highest in the country, they're under the nationwide average. And I think that's fantastic. So, do they still have work to do? Absolutely. But it's working. The things they did... They are working. Yeah. And, you know, and what's happening in Camden may not work everywhere else. Back check. Back check. Back check. And welcome back to Fact Check. So, the story of Camden, New Jersey is actually more nuanced than it appears at first. In 2011, crime rates across New Jersey began to rise dramatically. This rise appears to be caused in part by extreme budget cuts made by bridge aficionado Governor Chris Christie. Camden's budget was cut by 20% in one year, leading to cuts in all kinds of social services, from libraries, and including firefighters, and you guessed it, police. With the city under duress, and over the objection of Camden community members, local officials partnered with Governor Christie to enact a plan to disband the city's police force. 
and replace it with a regional county force. The goal was to dissolve the local police union, which would allow for a cheaper force that would enable more policing, not less. And it got nasty. The new officers, majority of which were white, embraced warrior tactics, seeing their community members as criminals rather than citizens who it was their job to protect and serve. In the first year of the new force, summonses for disorderly conduct shot up by 43%. Summonses for maintaining lights or reflectors on vehicles spiked 421%. Summonses for tinted car windows similarly increased 381%. And absurdly, summonses for riding a bicycle without a bell or a light rose from 3 to 339. These policing tactics naturally upset the citizens. Lawsuits filed against the department uncovered that officers routinely planted evidence on suspects, fabricated reports, and committed perjury. After this came out, the courts overturned convictions of 88 people, and in 2012, officials voted to completely disband the department. It was beyond reform. From 2012 to 2018, Camden experienced a 23% drop in violent crime and a 48% drop in non-violent crime. However, Camden's crime rate drops were similar to those of other New Jersey cities. For example, Newark saw a violent crime drop of 25% and non-violent crime fall 40% during the same period. The situation in Camden really only improved after the community forced the department to rewrite their use of force policies. Once in 2015, after joining a de-escalation mentoring program, and again in 2019 when the department went a step further by requiring officers to intercede if another officer was using force inappropriately. There's been a slightly higher drop in crime rates in Camden over the last four years when compared to other New Jersey cities. While it might be too early to say what effects these changes will ultimately have, it's hard not to see that Camden has gone from having murder rates that were six times the national average to being below average. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Back check, back check, back check. I think this is very much going to need to be uh, customized for each individual community. But, I mean, there are things like, I think officers should live in the neighborhoods that they patrol. I think yeah. that if you have more than one use of force complain against you, congratulations, you don't have a job anymore. And I would, I would be willing to have like a civilian panel go ahead and look into each officer individually, well, because I do know it's a rough job. And I do know that people like to just because they don't like how something went down. So probably don't turn off your fucking body cameras. I think any officer that turns off their body camera intentionally done. You don't have a job anymore. You can't get you can't get rehired anywhere else. You're done. Yeah. Well, the body camera and uh, it was intended to and and it has uh, right. on numerous occasions it's been there to protect both the officers and the civilians. It's to keep everything above board. And I think one of the very first things I think just should happen across the board is if you turn your body cam off, you're fired. Don't turn that shit off. Ever. It's on for your whole shift because if anybody needs to review any tape, even before you talk about any sort of other police changes, this is the first thing you can do. That body camera is that, your that lifeline works. 
your if job you have good intentions in your job. Nothing wrong if indeed you did nothing wrong. Well, no, I, so that's the thing is turning it off, be, making that like a fireable offense make, means it doesn't necessarily matter if you have good intentions. If you want to keep your job, you're going to a not break any of the rules, like right. say murder someone, and b for, keep you're your right. camera Absolutely, on. for a good so police officer, murder good someone. Officer, like that I, body I think cam it, is your friend. That is a is your quick safeguard. Best friend. Because if there's any confusion about what happened during a stop, and you followed the rules and you you follow procedures, that body cam is going to save you every single time. But um, there was just an incident this week. Where a police chief was fired because there was an oh, yeah. officer-involved shooting where anyway. someone was killed. And magically, all three officers that were involved in that shooting, their body cams were off. But you know what happened? Nobody got arrested. The police chief, not the officers involved, the police mm-hmm. chief lost his job. Fact check. Yeah. Wasn't that I just want to point out Louisville? to all that the listeners out there, city, Andy did just call it Louisville. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Louisville. Yes. Louisville Slugger. Because that's a correct pronunciation. <laughs> Would you rather I say Louis or Ludwig? Back check, back check, back check. And welcome back to Fact Check. David McAtee was a local Louisville, Kentucky business owner of Yaya's Barbecue. McAtee was a pillar of the community known in the area for regularly giving free food to police officers. In a staggering display of lack of weapon discipline, McAtee was shot and killed when the National Guard and Louisville police opened fire on a crowd of protesters after saying they'd been fired on first. It appears that it was a member of the National Guard who ultimately killed him. After being shot dead, protecting his niece by putting his body between her and the bullets, McAtee's body was left on the street for over 12 hours. Governor of Kentucky Andy Bashir told the public, quote, I'm not asking people to trust our account, and said that body cam footage from the two officers involved in the shooting would be released only to find out later that neither of them had their body cams on at the time. Police Chief Steve Conrad was immediately fired and the two officers will be given disciplinary action, whatever that means. McAtee's niece was shot in the incident, but thanks to his bravery, she survived and will recover. And let's get back to the show. Back check, back check, back check. Louis? Like, uh, Louis Fifthville? Louis Thirteenthville, even better. Um... So, there actually is a bill in Congress, speaking of sort of national reform and what can be done now, there's some stuff floating around Congress. How much do you know about that? Uh, Not a whole hell of a lot, because it kind of doesn't matter. It seems like some of it is good, but none of it involves defunding police. And there's this thing called the Republican Party that... uh, I don't want to say they're all overtly racist, but also they also kind of are, and so they'll never so, they'll never let it get passed. So it doesn't matter what's in the house. I th- I think there's kind of two issues with. Or I'm going to p- take issue with two things you just said. First of all, I'm going to take a quick issue with um, that the the legislation doesn't include defunding 
police because it kind of can't entirely. I mean, it could, but they can't really. They don't actually have that power. A quish you, if you will. Police are mostly local. A quish you. A quick issue. Never mind. A, oh, a quish you. Yeah. Nice. A quick issue. Um, Pat's still bringing the puns to the episode. I appreciate it. The um, that's the the anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's, keep in mind, a lot of localized. It's not super up to Congress to do that. So, but keep in mind, in their a lot defense, of this but, bill involves recommendations for local police departments and local vicinities, and they could absolutely well, include a recommendation that that happened, and they have not. It's true; they could, and they haven't. That is totally fair. The other thing, though, that I, I was going to say is. It does include a few good things, and it's also missing one other big component. So, the other thing that it's missing is something called qualified immunity. Are you familiar with that? It is the worst thing ever. Yes. Yeah, it's super bad. This is basically what's been protecting police and and other government officials from lawsuits over, over wrongdoing. What it does is requires... That in order to file a lawsuit to sue a government official for wrongdoing, you have to prove a pattern of wrongdoing. And so they have to have a chain of reports and, uh, like, injunctions filed against them or right, whatever the but, word is there. You know? But also, they, for, forget about the lawsuits. It means that police can't be fired or held criminally responsible for their actions, if they can come up with a reason that another officer would have reasonably made the same action. And the problem is that we have this country that has a long history of racism and violence towards black people, so it's always easy to find precedence on your evil f***ing actions based on other things that have happened where other officers haven't been punished for that action. Yeah. It's awful. And Cory Booker just came out and said that it should be removed. And I think if you're going to have... There are a bunch of different stuff if we want to actually reform police. But that is something that absolutely has to go away if there's any chance of doing anything that has any sort of result at the end of this. Yeah, it's right there with the unions at providing a shield for these officers. And what's interesting is actually, so it's not in the bill that's being pushed by House Democrats or, um, and it's definitely not in the bill being pushed by Senate Republicans. And it's way not in Trump's proposed actions. We can get to that cluster later, but, um, it is actually been put on the table by two House representatives. One, I can't remember her name, but fairly progressive Democrat and Justin Amash, who just recently left the Republican Party for the Libertarian Party. Kind of an interesting uh, across the aisle sort of work on putting that forward, but they're kind of, no one's listening, except for, I guess, Cory Booker now. Mini fact check. The Ending Qualified Immunity Act is legislation introduced by Justin Amash, Libertarian from Michigan, and Ayanna Presley, Democrat from Massachusetts, to end qualified immunity in the United States. Amash explained, 
quote, This week I am introducing the Ending Qualified Immunity Act to eliminate qualified immunity and restore Americans' ability to obtain relief when police officers violate their constitutionally secured rights. The brutal killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police is merely the latest in a long line of incidents of egregious police misconduct. This pattern continues because police are legally, politically, and culturally insulated from consequences for violating the rights of people whom they have sworn to serve. That must change so these incidents of brutality stop happening. Mini fact check. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really big deal, and it has to be dealt with. Any any bill, any legislation that doesn't deal with that, I think, is spinning its wheels. So there, there's a couple of things that um, I'm I'm not sure that you guys have completely thought through the ramifications of. So if you make it so that any time that a body cam gets turned off, like if if there's a battery that runs out, if there's any kind of malfunction, then you're talking about people immediately losing their job over something they had no control over. That's one thing. I mean, that's, I, that's not that important to me. That's fair. I, I literally just thought of that as I said it. So that's totally fair. And I, like, Absolutely and right. I genuinely don't know what the answer to that. Like, for example, if there's two officers at the scene and both of their body cameras go out at the same time, Man, that's sketchy as hell. But if one of them goes out, like maybe maybe there's something to be, be had there. And there are also yeah. there like there are computers that record when something's turned off or turned on, or can control when when something breaks. You right, run if out it's of a user, whatever it is. If it's a user input, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, but also like um, what you're talking about is having the rules of policing change and have them written by people that are not necessarily experienced in that field at all. Now I'm not saying that there can't be creative and good solutions that we can change up the way that things are done, but there are things that work and things that don't work. And making it so that people have to go into dangerous situations and they have to be unarmed, people will know that they're unarmed, Um, there's a potential for violence escalating quickly against whoever you're sending in, like social workers. I think you're dead right about that, and I think there's going to be some stuff that happens early on, but... What we have now is like the worst possible situation. And let's let's for a second give the police the benefit of the doubt. I know I maybe started this episode by saying fuck the police. And I acknowledge that. But there are people that I trust, that I care about, that I am related to, who are police. That I know do a good job. And I know care deeply about the people that they serve. I mean, for example, I've talked about it before, how my family runs Toledo Pride. And every year, we need dozens of police to protect the people who come, who just, like, make sure if you get too drunk that you, like, are pointed in the right direction to get a ride home or whatever. And those police care deeply about their community and are fantastic. I Like, I know a dozen cops from there who do their absolute best to take care of the community. My my thing is, 
while I understand there are good cops out there, that's that's not really what I think Bear's talking about right now. Right. There's there's absolutely a problem, and there needs to be solutions to it. My problem is that with the the rioting and you know, I I fully support the protesting and peacefully protesting, but when you're talking about like lighting cop cars on fire and looting buildings, I think that mm-hmm. there is a there's a middle America that sees that on the news and is not made sympathetic to the cause, is made more alienated and has pushback against that. Like, I, I don't think that you are doing a good propaganda job for the side that you're supporting when right. you light a police car on fire. Yeah, and I think, so, I think you're right, but I also think that you are less right now in 2020 than you would have been, say, 50 years ago when this shit was going down before. And the reason for that is because of the internet. I think that what the internet has done now, this time around, and it it wasn't even quite like this back in 2012 or 14, whenever, um, when this started happening, when, when white people started to become aware of it happening on a regular basis, I think what the internet has done, first of all, not just the internet, but camera phones, allowing people to film these things happening and put it out into the world immediately. So when, when people are looting and burning down a police precinct in Minneapolis, there's a much more, there's already a sense of sympathy for what those people are going through prominent in the country. Really? Because I, I looked at that. I was, I was fairly horrified. Not, I'm not saying like across the board, but way more. Yes. No, I'm just, I'm just saying like there's, there's more sympathy than there used to have been because people already know why they're right. So, as opposed to finding out that they burned out a precinct and then finding out why. Couple, couple of things real quick. They had taken over the precinct before it happened. They made sure nobody was in the precinct before they lit it on fire. And also, those cops kind of. But the other thing, the one funny thing that I can say about that is they did a poll about people, uh, whether they supported or didn't support the burning of that uh, third precinct. And 53% of people agreed, which I think is funny considering that Trump has a 41% approval. So Trump, 41%, burning down a police station, 53%. Well, and I think Biden is at like 48 Yeah. <laughs> right there, there's there's no equivalency between uh, a person's life like a person you know the the police kneeling on your neck for nine minutes until you die and property like there's there's no equivalency there whatsoever right yes it's always more important that you know you save a life than that you burn down a pretty meaningless brick and mortar taxpayer paid building but the the message that you're putting out i'm pretty shocked to hear that 53 percent of people were in favor of that 
I think, I think it's a very strong message. I mean, it's a punch you in the face with our with with our grievances kind of message. But and and I don't disagree with you. I want to be very clear. I don't disagree with you that 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 level of destruction of property is not good. There's no situation unless like unless there's some sort of invasive alien life form in that precinct that's going to kill all of humanity if we don't burn it down. We probably shouldn't be burning down precincts in general. But sure. But like I also I feel like it was a uh, the, the the fires of Gondor lit kind of kind of moment. <laughs> if that nerdily makes enough sense. Um, yeah, no, like it was, a, it was a call for help, and that that specific precinct, I should say, that was not their first or second or tenth case of police brutality that happened in that community. This had been a long-term problem, and finally people stood Matter up. Matter of fact, I, this actually goes back to you. a really long way. In, in Minneapolis and, and St. Paul, there's this highway that connects the two cities that has basically placed a stranglehold on the black, uh, very like vivacious and vibrant community, but, but also v- extremely impoverished community. Um, that kind of sits between the two cities goes back all the way back to the fifties when they put this highway in. And the funny thing is they put the highway in where they did because the more affluent white communities where they were going to put the highway paid a lot of money to move it. Cause they didn't want a highway there. I like the, yeah. right. I like you, that you use the word vivacious because it always makes me think of bugs, bunny in a dress. <laughs> So, that's, that's a, even now, go. that's still a, a pleasant image. I mean, it's not transphobic, right? <laughs> I, I don't think you could put it on TV today. So, I don't think so. Um, but no, Pat, what I'd like to say is I get your discomfort, like, and I share it. But that's how you change things. Riots have been a, a way of making change in this country for centuries, and I mean, that's always it's the funny the thing way about our country like, was Tea Party. <laughs> right. The way, like, it always is hilarious to me because every once in a while you'll see uh, either current or former Tea Party members complaining about the riots. Like, what the f do you think your whole thing is named after? Yeah. Like, it was, it was a riot where they threw a bunch of tea into the bay. Yeah. But I. Yeah, like prop, like you said, property is more important. Wait, than I think lives, you had that reverse, but it anyway, sucks that property um, is not more important than lives. No, no, that was right. Pro- <laughs> property is more important no. than lives. Yep. No, I you you know uh, we've been doing this for a while. Right. You know, I'm all about the people. I'm all about business owners. Right. No, I think it. I think it sucks that business owners have been losing stuff, but they're is an argument to be made that this is the way you make change. Well, you know, like th- this is a way these people are insured. These people are going to like people are, yes, people are going to lose jobs over this. And you take these businesses that were already in a rough situation because of COVID-19 and you've made it exponentially worse. And that sucks. 
But there's a woman who I'll include a segment of what she was talking about here in the episode, and I put it on my Facebook page. But she was talking about how they burned down their neighborhoods because they don't own anything. They're not their neighborhoods. They don't own the buildings. They don't own the businesses because black people have had to deal with systemic racism. The One of my uh, facts that I've been bringing up online over and over and over again that I think is a really good example of how systemic racism is real is the average medium wealth of a family. So you take everything, if you took everything you had and you sold it, what you'd, what you'd be worth uh, as you sold everything. The medium wealth of a white family is a $141,900. Either you want to take a guess what the average wealth of a black family is. It's like a nickel. I mean, it's, it, it's going to be really low. So probably less than $1,000. It's, it's real bad. It's... It, you you are both underestimating the black community. It is $11,000. But white people literally own 13 times more money than black people do. Or, like, the they, they have yeah. 13 times more. So, if I can make a, a five-step argument for systemic racism, because I've been dealing with this all week. Step one, slavery. We kidnap and enslave... Africans, and we steal, and by we, I mean the white families of this country, we steal $14 trillion worth of labor from them. That actually is the right Step. figure. I know that. Yes. Yeah. I've been I've been doing Look this all you. week, and I'll make sure to include, include these sources in the doobly-doo. Step two, we make it, the, so the way you pass on wealth from generation to generation in this country is through real estate. And up until about... I mean, it depends on how you look at it. At least, at least through the 1970s to early 80s, if you were black because of things like redlining and, you know, being owned by other people and just having zero rights, um, they have not been able to buy property... And if they were able to buy property because they somehow got the money together, they're not able to buy property in the area they want. And if they do buy property in the area that they want, the property values go down because realtors at the time would specifically sell a home to an African-American family and then knock on the next door and be like, hey, a black family just moved in next to you. The property values are going to go way down. Why don't you go ahead and sell me your house and I'll make sure that you get out of here before you don't have any. So... They would move other black families into that neighborhood, actively move the white people out. So that way, all the money that these African-American families spent on these houses is worth nothing. Uh, step three uh, in my argument is $141,900 for white people, $11,000 for black families. Step well, wait, four. Wait, that's not a step. Uh, what do you... Uh, okay. What's the what statement? I'm, what I'm trying to say, it is... <laughs> it is a step in that we see this is how much the, the disparity is in our country. It's roughly 13 times more, and it depends on where you live. For example, in Boston, uh, the average medium wealth for a white family is about a quarter million dollars. 
and the average median wealth for a black family is eight dollars. Well, and going back to Minnesota, Minnesota is actually pretty well. Well, it's becoming pretty well known for this fact that the quality of the average quality of life in Minnesota is super super high in the, for the United States. It's one of the best quality of life average in the United States, but. Only if you're white. Minnesota has the second highest wealth or, or, or uh, quality of life gap between white and black people in that state. Right. Step step three is basically there is an inherent difference between what white people own in this country and what black people own in this country. And that difference is as wide as the ocean. Step four the FBI has done research and has found that there is a direct link between violence and poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, black people are arrested 700% more often. I think it's actually 670% more often than white people are for crimes that they didn't commit. They are 700% more likely to be freed from false allegations of murder. Black people have, they are two and a half times more likely to be shot than white people by police. It's all real bad, but the argument that I keep coming across uh, people on Facebook are that black people are 50% more likely to commit crimes than white people. And what I would say is that poor people are significantly more likely to commit crimes than the average citizen. Which brings me to step five. We made them poor. It's our fault. That's systemic racism. Those five things. Slavery, not letting them own any property. They have a substantially lower wealth. The wealth gap is insane. Poor people commit more crimes. We made them poor. Systemic racism. Yeah, I mean... Or maybe I should say the prestige. Uh, All right, I I think that pretty much nails it. I mean, if we go back right, four hundred years of of being in uh, of of white people and uh, and slaves being in the Americas, in North America especially, four hundred years, right? Sixteen nineteen, isn't that? Yeah, something like that. Anyway, so um, two hundred and fifty of those years was slavery. And then a hundred more years was Jim Crow and, and blatant oppression. And 50 years is just implicit dis- discrimination. And um, and the funny thing is, not funny, the horrifying thing is that out of the laws which are oppressive, um, that, that are actively problematic, a fair amount anyway, were even, you know, well-intentioned um, and, and kind of backfired in one way or another. Or are, are laws that we don't really look at the same way now, but have had very dramatic and negative effects on black and brown communities. Um, and, and the example I want to bring up is gun control laws, which for most for, for a long time, and, and we're seeing why right now, for a very long time in this nation's history, 
Gun control laws was coded racism. Access to firearms was something for only for white people. And and this is why, right? Be, to 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 make the black communities either defenseless or cost them too much to defend themselves in order to you know to fight, like to make them vulnerable. Right. So when when people talk about gun control laws, I think it's important to always acknowledge that there's this very racist history to that. Right, and and of course, of course, all of that is true, and and all of that is awful. The the people who are in our generation growing up today didn't have anything to do with the decisions that that made that. Like, didn't didn't have anything to do with that. But my point is that we see the effects of essentially of the the weaponization of police over black people back then it was as simple as black people can't get access to firearms nowadays it's that black communities can't protect themselves from police in other ways um including that i mean i would i would also say our generation and our parents generation and our grandparents generation didn't say shit because they benefited from those things i mean yeah maybe we didn't cause it but we also didn't dismantle it, and we knew for God sure that it existed. Yeah. Um, something I've heard of to do, you just maybe I shouldn't sidetrack Pat with quick answers. Well, not not particularly. Just that um, you know, I I think that coming up with solutions is productive. I think that that's that's something that we should. Sure. Work towards. Yeah. I think that uh, trying to assign blame and and say that like you know this is X Y and Z's fault. It's it's everybody's problem, and and we're we're going to have to come up with solutions whether yeah. or not we feel culpable for it. <laughs> so. And and the good news is we know exactly that. who's to blame, so we don't have to assign anything. It's already done. But I think you're right, and like sort of. Coming back to something you said earlier, I think police are involved in the conversation to fix this. I think if good police who have taken their oath seriously and their main concern is not to save their job or to have more power or whatever it is, if their job is and their main goal is the safety of their community, I think they absolutely have a voice in that conversation. There's a bunch of them who don't get a voice in that conversation and need to be fired and arrested and spend a significant amount of time in jail. But there are several of them, like the people I talked about, that I think would be valuable voices in keeping their community safe and how to move forward with that. And in fact, I think that would be a great idea for an episode is to get a, a, well, a good cop, a, a good person on here to talk about what are some things from an insider's perspective. But we're, we're also talking about, and, and shooting deaths are very serious and a big part of the problems that we are talking about. It, it happens to not yeah. particularly be a part of the problem with the George Floyd case. No, no, that's true. Um, uh, so, I mean, guns, guns, I mean, we, we should talk about guns, and I'm not saying we, we should sweep away guns, but we should also be talking about um, policing techniques and the, sure. the, 
Let's talk about yeah. the chokehold because that's something else that was in the legislation that's on uh, going in Congress right now. They're talking about banning the chokehold, and I think it's worth mentioning that chokeholds were banned in New York City when Eric Garner was right. choked to death. So I'm not really super convinced that that is right. a useful. Well, I I just don't want to see any. Well, I don't want to see any cop ever putting a knee on someone's neck. Like, I don't want to see a photo or a video of that. I, like, why should that ever happen again? That that should be just blanket something that never happens. Right. And I think as, a res- the, as a response of this situation. The, I think my, instead of trying to focus on specific acts, because if you say you can't do X thing, they're going to find Y horrific thing to do instead. I think... One of the reasons I have been saying things like the police um, lately is because that act and so many different others showed how little concern that officer had for having any consequences come from his actions. The fact that he felt comfortable kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes while he knew damn well he was on video showed that he had no concern that there were going to be any consequences of his actions. And I think Did you that's... see his face during the, the court hearing, the sentencing? No. I, the, I couldn't yeah. watch it. I mean, which is weird, yeah, considering sorry. I've watched the nine minutes that he, that he kneeled on the neck. I just couldn't watch what he the was... The man saying. has no soul. Yeah. But, no, I think the main concern is less about the specific acts, although I think there is value in going through them and making sure officers no appropriate responses, but George Floyd wasn't at any point violent with them or offering them anything but cooperation. We have the video from several different angles now. Ostensibly, anyway. We've seen seen the video from Before he went into the cop car to get pulled out and onto the street where he was knelt on, he was not complying perfectly. But I don't want to make this... I don't want to make that sound like an excuse. I don't want to make that sound like um, he... Oh, he deserved it. That's... Because he didn't... That's nonsense. And I want to be very clear that that's not what I mean. But from the accounts that I've heard, it wasn't a total compliance from start to finish. Well, so two things... That is all I'm going to say. My my (laughs) main concern is the attitude of these police and the expectation that they can do whatever the f*** they want and suffer no consequences. The other thing is, one of the other owners of the club that George George Floyd and I forget the name of the officer that guy. Chauvin. Chauvin. They work together and apparently, I read an article uh, a couple of days ago that a former uh, owner of the club they used to work at together said that they had some sort of beef with each other. And so... If that turns out to be true, we could be talking about murder one. Yeah, premeditated. Yeah. yeah that guy. I hope, I, I mean, in a weird, twisted sort of sense, I hope that that turns out to be true because the look on the guy's face as he knelt there for almost 10 minutes, squeezing the life out of that man while he begged and pleaded for his life, I, that is reprehensible, right. and I hope he never sees the light of day again. Well, I mean, so I think just, maybe you're getting oof. tripped up a little bit. The The premeditation requirement for Murder One does not necessarily have to take 
a long time. It just needs to show that there was planning of any kind involved. So, I mean, that could happen very quickly. I mean, yeah, that could definitely be a a condition that leads to murder one, but we could be looking at murder one regardless. Right. For example, taking someone out of a squad car that they were already in specifically for the purpose of kneeling on their neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Yeah. Um, and, and I want, just for the listeners sake, cause they don't really know me. Um, like I am, I am against capital punishment. I am pretty, pretty strongly against, uh, the penal system being used as a penal system. I'm very much pro, you know, re- rehabilitation and, and so I'm not the kind of person who says throw him in, in jail and lock away the key and let him die there. Um, but in, in his case, that's, that's where I'm coming down. Yep. I am. I'm that kind of person. Anyway, that guy, my, that guy is not the death penalty. My, that guy is go spend the rest of your life in prison, which I'm sure will be super fun. With all the people right. that you sent there, I, I'm mostly hoping yep, that there's well, a there's a legal framework that comes out of this, where you know we are going to take a serious look at uh, like the blue the blue shield and things like qualified immunity, yeah. and we're going to say like you know this needs to be overseen by the community, like maybe there's a a community council or uh, some kind of community oversight that people get a say in the way that these things are handled. I I don't know that there is a really focused response that's coming as a unified front. Uh, maybe I could be mistaken, um, but of, of the demands of, of what we want to get out of this, uh, I would like to see, you know, some positive changes so that this wasn't just, you know, all for more of the same. Yeah, if if we can, can we talk about that for a second? Like, what, is, what does a reasonable response from the government look like in exchange for this? What, what does it make sense for to happen uh, as a result of these protests? I, so I have Please. kind of a five-point plan, if I may. I'll kind of try to stump speech it here. Um, so, one, body cams. Body cams on cops at all times. Part of procedure is making sure that it's charged up and has enough battery to last the shift. If it gets turned off or something, it, you know, if, if, if it get, if it turns off accidentally, the officer needs to be, let them know right away so that they can go replace, go back to the office and replace it. Um, yeah, you know, whatever reasonable accommodations need to be made. Right. And I think just revisiting that technology, because I think an officer literally shouldn't be able to turn off their body cam. It just stays on by, like, you don't need an off button. Yeah. You're, you're good. We'll make sure it's charged. It's going to be, like, right. mounted into your vest, and it's just going to go everywhere with you. This thing is going to save your career over and over and over again by documenting what has happened in an incident and the public and the public gets to access that information that's for accountability sure i'm okay with that so that's that's accountability another accountability point 
it's kind of a twofold thing, but kneecap the unions, the police unions, and get rid of qualified immunity. Those types of protections, police need to be held to a much higher standard for use of excessive force and for how they interact with the public. And those two things are essential uh, in, in, in being able to get to that. We've talked a good bit about this, but reducing the... Can I suggest, can we can we take the police unions and then just go ahead and move them on over to Amazon? And then the police unions go ahead, go ahead and negotiate with Jeff Bezos for what Amazon employees should get because uh, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, that that sounds great. Sure. I want to. I just want to try and find a way to like work that into every God, episode. Every <laughs> episode, you son of a bitch. All right, number three. We've already talked. To- We'd use the police unions evil for good. Oh yeah, right. Totally. All right, number three, and and we've kind of talked a bit about this, so I'll just kind of list it off. But reducing the scope of responsibilities for police, I think. There's a few things that can pretty easily be moved off of the police's plate. I think there's some other things that are a little more, you know, need some some finessing to get it off their plate. Uh, But that should be the general trend. Letting police really focus on solving crimes like murder, rape, and and what was it? Possession? Deception? Sorry, what? What? I don't know. What is possession? (laughs) I forget what the other thing you said was. Uh... Property destruction. There we go. Yeah, there we go. I like them to come nowhere near uh, drug issues either. Well, that okay. That's a separate thing, though. <laughs> okay, number four is is getting rid of no knock warrants. These are a huge, huge problem. No knock warrants give police permission to just burst in on certain drug crimes and things like that without knocking first. And has resulted in the death of numerous black and brown people who were, like, for example, literally sleeping. Breonna Taylor. So that is, those are a big, big, big problem and have caused caused a lot of death and destruction that didn't need to happen. And number five is is a complete overhaul of police training. In America... Please go through a very intense, rigorous 21-week training to enter the police course. That's about a half a year. It's about a six-month, super intense course. Do you want to know how long police training takes in, say, Finland or Germany? Two years? Three years. Three years. Because they're taking courses on psychology and sociology. They're taking courses on um, on, on de-escalating tense situations and things like that. They're, I mean, these they are so much more thoroughly trained. And I'm going to let the fact check do this part. I'm going to let the fact check do this. That just needs to be the watchword of every police yeah. training from now on is de-escalation. That's your job. Yeah. That's um, going to be 90%. I'll let you handle this in the fact check, but... In, in, I think, Finland, the average death by police per year is less than one person over the last, like, ten years. It is less than a person a year, on average, that a person is killed by police in police custody, etc., in Finland. I'll let you fact-check me on that, but it's crazy low. Fact-check, fact-check, fact-check. And welcome back to Fact-check. Okay, So how do U.S. police stand up against other countries? Well, 
Let's start with Finland, because Andy seems to love them so much. Finland's Police University College has a policing bachelor's program. It usually takes three years to complete, and students are required to complete 180 credit points before they can become police officers. Now, while it varies from state to state, in the U.S., police are required to take about 21 weeks of class training, with an additional 12 weeks of field training, adding up to a whopping 33 weeks of training total. Now, that's on average. Since 2000 in Finland, there have been 18 police-related fatalities, although one involved an adverse reaction to a taser, and the other involved an officer accidentally discharging their weapon. If you want to compare police shootings in other wealthy countries, here are the numbers for recent years. In New Zealand, they had one police fatality. In Japan, they had two. In England and Wales combined, they had three. In the Netherlands, they had four. In Germany, they had 11. In Australia, they had 21. In Canada, they had 36. And here in the United States, we had 1,099. Officers in 2018, which is the most recent year I was able to find, who died in line of duty for a few comparable countries are Australia, zero. In Canada in 2018, six officers died. And in 2018 in the United States, 185 officers died. Now, these are just a few facts at a glance, and I'm sure there's a lot of nuance that I'm not capturing. But here's the bottom line. American police are both killing and dying in numbers that dwarf all of the rest of every other wealthy countries combined. And that's it. Let's get back to the show. Fact check. Fact check. Fact check. What I'm curious about now is if Finnish police are armed. Is that one thing by themselves? Okay, so it looks like Finnish police have access to weapons, but they don't carry them around. I think that's a, a great matter of course. policy for a lot of communities. I, I don't think that would be great practice for all communities. I think places like Chicago, New York, that probably wouldn't make a lot of sense. But say here in Cleveland Heights, you know, I think, yeah, give them a stun gun and have the the guns back at the back at the office station. I keep saying that. Thank you. Back at the station. <laughs> oh, special moment. <laughs> can I can I just say, like in in this week's episode of Slap My Forehead because of Joe Biden, we had him come forward and say, "Well." Can they just shoot him in the leg? Yeah. And, like, that's his solution to police violence, is not to, like, have them shoot less. But well, just and Pat's brought this instead. up a few times in the past, especially on the guns episode, I remember, that when it comes to police training, what they're generally trained to do is shoot for center of mass, which is the triangle, right? It's the, the nipples yeah. and the... Right. If you if you are authorized to use deadly force, then you are going to exercise deadly force. There there's no in between, and right. the data on like trying to incapacitate somebody by shooting them in the arm or the leg it it puts the officer at risk. It's not effective. There's no guarantee that it will work. It's it's a mess. There there's there's no good reason to do right. it. Well, and this is a weird thing for me as a liberal, is that I'm in favor of that. I've always been in favor of if police 
feel genuinely threatened, they should have the right to use deadly force. The problem is, you can't trust them. There's no trust with police forces anymore. You're also at risk of lowering the bar for what constitutes deadly force. So if we're saying there's a situation that it's questionable whether it could call for deadly force, but I'm going to pull out my gun and just shoot them in the leg, you know, it's going to create a nightmare of uh, legal precedence for figuring out when deadly force is justified if that could be just shooting someone in the leg as opposed to the intent to kill. Yeah, um, and and in fact, that is pretty closely a direct result of that training issue that I just mentioned. When you're taking basically what probably ought to be a three-year process and condensing it down to half a year, a lot of stuff gets left out, and all that's really safe to leave in or what's, what ends up getting left in, in American police training, is is a lot of survival tactics. And, first of all, that doubles down and reinforces the police using those tactics. Those are the police tactics, are, are just survive and get out of this alive tactics. And it also, I think, leaves a lot of young police basically expecting their work as a police officer to be a series of survival situations where they are it's it's kill or be killed and it just preempts a mindset of um of aggression so a couple of things first of all one of the reasons why i kind of want police just to tear it all fucking down and start from scratch is if we have taken nothing from the last week and a half and all of these different incidents with police, their threat assessment is broken beyond repair. They don't understand what a reasonable amount of threat is. They don't understand when their lives are actually going to be in danger. And frankly, police need to be okay with being in a little bit of danger. And by that, I mean, if you're approaching a car and you see the man driving it is black, that's not an excuse to pull your gun. Are you saying that a black person presents danger? You tell... I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying there's a... There are reasonable times where you can feel like you're being threatened. Mm -hmm. That is not one of them. When a person who's driving a vehicle says, I have a gun in the car, does not reach for it, and you say, don't pull it, don't pull it, and then shoot him four times in front of his wife, that's not a reasonable time that you Hashtag were in danger. Yeah. Police don't understand what a reasonable amount of danger is. And I'm not saying that applies to everybody, but it applies to way, way, way too many of them. I think also, this, this, you know, we made the point last week um, about about how dangerous the job of policing is. But I think what that doesn't really take into account is the fact that police work is largely based around those negative, those potentially violent interactions. Whereas some of those other jobs that are listed as more dangerous, they're not, they're still not confrontational jobs. 
you know, being a pizza delivery mm-hmm. guy is not, you don't go out like expecting as soon as you get a, a pizza delivery call, you don't expect to, or, or even think that you're going to encounter violence. Like it's not something that you generally set your right. first thought is, oh, this is, this could be a fatal interaction. Whereas for police, any call that they get could be. Much in the same way that, you know, a, a black person getting pulled in. I know me saying that police work isn't that dangerous is sort of like a provocative thing to say. I understand that it's a dangerous job, but part of that danger is what they bring to the situation. If you come into a situation with your hand on your gun or... All right. Here's, I want to talk about, real quick, a real piece of named uh, Dave Grossman. And Dave Grossman is a police trainer who trains, uh, he trained the Minneapolis police. He's gone around the country, trained a bunch of different people. This warrior training. He talks to police about, you need to be ready to kill. If you can't kill without, without hesitation, this is the wrong job for you. You should feel comfortable at the end of the day. Let's say you killed somebody on your shift and you go home and uh, when you get home, you shouldn't feel bad at all. He literally says, you know what? After you kill somebody, you're going to go home. You're going to have the best sex of your life. These are the kinds of things that this son of a Dave Grossman says. And the problem is that there are a bunch of different bull police trainings that don't have any evidence backing them up that use this warrior mindset. And the problem is when you see yourself as a warrior instead of what they should be, which is guardians, you set yourself up as your community that you serve as being your enemy. Instead of being your wards, the people that you are oath-bound to protect, you see them as the enemy, and it's going to make every situation a potentially violent situation for you. Instead of going out and seeing these people as People that you need to protect. People that you need to make sure that you are taking care of instead of like seeing them with suspicion and thinking that they are going to kill you at every turn. Because that's, that's something you're bringing to the job with you. And that is something that makes every interaction you have more dangerous. The FBI developed the Shoot No Shoot program, which is very similar, in which a rear projection movie of a perpetrator in various circumstances would occur. Mm-hmm. Under the right cues, under the right circumstance, a police officer would draw his weapon and fire, and fire, and fire, and mimic that process, and it becomes a reflex. You've practiced it, you've rehearsed it. The, the thing to realize is there are two filters that the mind has to go through to kill someone. The first filter is the forebrain, the conscious, rational mind. It will put you on the battlefield in a certain place with a weapon in your hand. Politics will do that. Leaders will do that. Other things will do that. But the second filter is the midbrain. Once you become frightened or angry, you literally stop thinking with the mind of a human being. You turn off the forebrain and you start thinking with the midbrain, the limbic system and the hypothalamus. You start thinking with the brain that's indistinguishable from a mind of an animal. You no longer become a rational creature. And what you've got to do is you have to go through this second filter if you want to make somebody kill. And the only way you make a frightened person react in a certain way is to drill it into them. If you fully prepare yourself, in most cases, killing is just not that big a deal. 
for a mature warrior who's prepared themselves mind, body, and spirit for a lifetime? For a mature warrior who's killing somebody represents a clear and present danger to others? It's just not that big a deal. There's no wrong way to respond to killing. There's many ways people respond, and they're all the same, they're, and they're all okay. But if you could choose how you responded, I think you'd want to feel good about it, yeah? So that was Dave Grossman. His last name is very appropriate because he is a gross man. <laughs> uh, still got it. Keeping the jokes flowing. Anyway, this is going to be the end of this week. Uh, we talked for going on three hours, and we have some audio clips to play for you from Andy going to the protests. We have some episodes that we have in the bank that are just fantastic, but because of what's going on with the George Floyd protests and racial injustice protests and the coronavirus and the way that everybody's been feeling and just everything over and over and over again, it just hasn't seemed appropriate. So in the next few weeks, we're going to be bringing you some episodes, uh, probably extra episodes that may not seem like they apply. Like we talked about the dumbs who went out protesting because they wanted haircuts. Like that's ancient history now, right? <laughs> like it only happened a few weeks ago, but it was a good episode. So we're going to go ahead and release that at some point soon. Uh, we talked to our friend David a couple of different times. One time about the more recent protests with Andy with a mini episode. And we talked to him about his experience with cults. Both of those were amazing episodes that we're going to get to you. We have stuff, you know, we have the second half of this episode. We love you. We want to get you out some good stuff. It's just a matter of how fast I can go ahead and edit it. And, you know, the emotional bandwidth I have to deal with on a daily basis. So um, we'll be getting you those soon. No precious moment this week. But as always, I mean, you guys are always my precious moment. So I guess I really need to come up with a catchphrase. I really hope that you've learned something today, and thank you for joining us, and love you, bye. Bye. Oh crap, I don't have anything for the end of the episode. Um, maybe I can hit myself in the nuts or something. Where'd that bowling ball come from?